For some, it's religion. For others, it's money. For some, it's fun. For others, it's success or power. Or science or knowledge. Or beauty. Or popularity. For some, it's love or sex. For some, it's their family. But the Bible says, all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. This means we were created to worship. There is only one who is really worthy of our worship. That's why nothing else in this world satisfies. We keep on looking, we keep on striving, we keep on buying, but nothing delivers. Nothing brings us that deep satisfaction that we long for. But when you live your life with Jesus as the center, you're doing exactly what you're created to do. You're right in the place you're supposed to be. So the irony is that when we give our lives over to worship Jesus, that's when we actually find ourselves. Everyone worships, but we were made to worship just one. I'd like to invite any of our children who would like to to come down and get the activity sheets that are there in the bucket here in front of me. The rest of you, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 62. We've been working through a, a series, starting last week, entitled First and Ten, Timeless Truths for Living Well in Modern Times. And what we've been talking about, or what we've been doing, is going back to the Ten Commandments and trying to extract, if you will, to, to, to pull out the, the wisdom, the value that we see in these teachings from God, and they're found not only in Exodus 20, but also in Deuteronomy 5. And what's really interesting, that at the very beginning of the formation of the nation, as God had led them out underneath the leadership of Moses, and had brought them out at the very beginning of creating them into a people who would walk with God, God gives them these instructions. And then when the the individual, the instrument that God was going to use, that God used to form the people, Moses, was about ready to pass off the scene. God once again emphasized these truths. And we come today to the second commandment. And admittedly, this is one of those commandments that's it's a little harder for us to pull forward into the 21st century. You know, I mean, let me just read verses 4 through 6 for us. He's already said, do not have any other gods before me. That's the first commandment. And again, in God's desire to bless the people by giving them instruction. He, God's intent always in giving commands to his people to, is to bless them. In that spirit, and trying to form up a people who can live well before him and enjoy his best, God's begun to give them his instructions. And the first one was, have no other gods besides me. And the second one is, do not make for yourself an idol, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. You not, must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the 
third and fourth generations of those who hate me. What he's really saying is, if you don't get this right, the negative legacy that you're going to leave to your family is going to go on for generations. That's how important it is. Then he goes on to say, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Just on the flip side, if you get this right, the heritage, the dynamic, the principles that you'll flow through your family will last on for generations and generations and generations. And certainly when in the time of Moses, the, the need for this kind of a command was evident to everybody. I mean, there was idol worship everywhere. A couple of the big names that we see were Baal and Moloch, and there was also the god Asherah went with Baal. There were fertility gods and etc. And, and everywhere you went, there were people that had set up idols, places where they could go and they felt like they could connect with God. And so in the days of Gideon, the hills, even throughout the areas that were occupied by the Jews, the hilltops had um, idols that were erected to the, pro, to the god Baal, or what the people thought were, was a god. But it wasn't just a, the, a, a, a national kind of problem. It was also a personal problem. Some of you are very familiar with the story of Jacob and how, you know, after literally cheating Esau out of the blessing, he had to flee home from Isaac. And he, and he ran away and he came to Laban's home. And there he fell in love with one of Laban's daughters. And through some trickery on Laban's part, he, he landed up having to marry two of Laban's daughters, one of those being Rachel. Rachel is the one he really wanted. And when the time came for them to leave Laban, they left under the cover of darkness and kind of snuck away. And, and Rachel took the, what'd she take? The family gods. If you, do you remember that story? She, they had these little figures that they would set up in their tents and so they would have the, the family gods with them. So wherever they went, they could have God with them. And, 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 and so in the days of Moses, this kind of an instruction of not setting up any kind of an idol, not making an idol, was a very important thing. God had not revealed Himself in a physical way. Certainly He had been the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, and those kinds of things, the lightning on the mountaintops, but God had not revealed Himself in an image that, that He wanted His people to make Himself in. He wanted to be the invisible God. And so He, had, so he, you know, so he told him, don't make an image, but we don't have much of an issue with that. I mean, I can stand here before you and tell you that in my 50 years of being on this planet, I have never, ever, ever been tempted to take my chainsaw, go out in the backyard, find the best maple tree I can find, cut out a 10-foot section of the trunk, and carve it into some kind of an image so I can go out and bow down to it. Never once has that crossed my mind. How about you? Anybody ever had that impulse? Or want to just go out and find the perfect piece of granite and start chiseling away at it so you can make some kind of an image that you could go out and bow down to? I mean, that, that's not a thing that we struggle with, Right? I mean, certainly there's some place for conversation within the body of Christ related to, to, to icons. I mean, some of the Christian traditions use icons quite a bit. You know, and it, I think in their, the spirit of that is that they're trying to give some tangible reminder to these great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 talks about that surround them. And with that, by having pictures of the saints that remind them of they, what they went through, it, it focuses them and energizes them. But... That's never really worked for me. I think there's a, a lot of need to be cautious about that. But, but even in that spirit, we don't struggle with idolatry in the same sense of wanting to go out and make a God that we can carry around with us. So do we just say, well, this doesn't really have any relevance to us? I mean, is it time just to close up the book and let's just go home? I mean, 
None of us are really breaking out our chisels or getting out our chainsaws to create our next God to put up in our backyard. Does that mean it doesn't have any relevancy for us? And I want to tell you, the answer to that question is no. In fact, I have a pastoral friend of mine who tells, who, who, his, his perspective is that all sin ultimately has its root in idolatry. It's giving something else God's place in our lives where it demands an allegiance from us. So how would I define an idol? And I didn't put this in your notes. If you want to write this down, that'd be great. But for me, when we think about the issue of idolatry, creating idols in our lives, that what we really need to think about are things that either limit or marginalize the influence of God in our lives. Anything in our lives that either limits or marginalizes the influence of God in our lives is an idol. And what, what I would say to you is that what the message today to us is, when we look at the second commandment, this, that if we're obedient, if we're obedient to this commandment, it has the ability to set up positive dynamics that'll run through our families for generation after generation after generation. Or we can bring a curse, a cancer into our families. What is that command to us? God says, don't idolize anything. Only worship me. Don't idolize anything. Only worship me. Now, uh, as, as always is my spirit when I preach, I want you to understand the, the foundations of why it is God is saying these things to us. Why is it that God's so jealous that He doesn't want us to have any kind of an image of Him that either limits or marginalizes His influence in our lives? And as through our understanding... We can bring our hearts to be more in agreement and for it to, and to be something that we actually live out in our lives. And, and, and what I want to do is offer to you some reasons why God gives this command. And, and it's going to flow out of the context in which Moses was giving it, but it, it has tremendous crossover value to us as we think about the significance of practicing idolatry in whatever form in our, in our times. And, and the first of all, remember when God made man? You know, he, he created Adam. In Genesis 1, and then he told Adam, he says, I want you to rule over the fish of the sea. I want you to rule over the birds of the air. I want you to rule over the animals of the land. Your job is to multiply and to subdue the earth, right? So God gives Adam, and through Adam to all of us, authority over the planet, that which is around us. Now, let's just say you choose, as some cultures have, to say, well, the cow is sacred. You know, we talk about sacred cows, right? You know, the cow is sacred. And so there were cultures that literally worship cows. And you, you, now you as the created being have this representation of God that you have control over. You get it? I mean, and one of the most dangerous things that can come into our lives is this idea that I can control God. So I don't care what you make. You could make it an eagle. You could make it a bear. You could make it an elephant. You could make it a cow. You could make it a snake. I don't care what you make it. You could even make it a sun or a moon or whatever. Whatever you make it, it gives you this idea that I have control over this. I can pick it up and move and place it wherever I want. I can turn my back on it and walk away from it whenever I want. And it gives us a sense of control, and that's detrimental. The whole week, the kids at Crosswalk spent saying, because God is the director of your life. He gets to write the script exactly the way he wants. And when we practice, the reason God didn't want them to, to build up these, these idols, to have these shrines where they could go somehow meet with him, is because it would give them this idea that they could have control over God. 
They could, that it would reduce God to an object that they could control. And spiritually, that's always detrimental. It's the kind of det- detriment that carries over from generation to generation. But beyond control, there's also the idea of false projections. A lot of you in high school and in college were afflicted with the fact that you had to read Greek literature, you know, and you, you're reading about the gods and et cetera that they had. And, 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 and the Greeks, what they primarily did is they, they envisioned gods as versions of the, the perfect human bodies. So they were these superhumans, you know. And, but what was the nature of these gods? I mean, they had these, this image that Zeus and Apollo and all these guys and Diana, whatever, that they were these, these, these handsome kind of human figures with supernatural powers, but with them they had all the human flaws too, didn't they? They were vengeful, selfish, capricious, and all those kinds of other things. When we, when we set up God in some kind of an image, we, we, we project falsehoods onto it. Things that aren't true of the character of the true God, the only God. And when we do that, it's always something that's detrimental to our spiritual vitality. It also creates a sense of, of localization. You know, it's, it's the idea that, that you, know, where, you know, here is the God here and I can walk away from the God. So I can, I can go to God and I can depart from God. There's places where God is and there's places where God isn't. Because he's not physically there. That's why Rachel took the family gods, right? She went and grabbed the little figurines and wrapped them up. And then when her father came looking for them, she sat on them and said she was in the womanly way or whatever. Because she wanted to make sure that they were with her. Because if they didn't stay with her, then somehow or another her gods wouldn't have any power over her. Any ability to protect her. And there was this localization. God's everywhere. And so God gives these reasons. He, he, He gives us these instructions to make no idols. For very good reasons. Because God is omnipresent. And He's omnipotent. And, he, and, he, and He's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. And, so, and He is sovereign. And He doesn't want any of those aspects impinged upon by the way that we carve Him out or chisel Him out to represent Him to ourselves. Well, what about the 21st century? Again, we don't have a lot of monuments. I mean, if you see a few major Jesus statues that people are trying to put her up around... We think a couple of years ago when we were on our Builders for Christ trip, there was a, a church out there that had this huge Jesus statue out in front. I mean, he was like 50 feet tall and et cetera. And then we were back and within, the, within a year of being back, they had some huge fire and Jesus fell over and broke and everything else. And so it was like it was this interesting kind of imagery. But, but you know, we don't, that's not really us, you know. But how, how is this relevant for us today? I, I tell you, what we've really done is we've, we've substituted physical idols, okay? We've substituted physical idols for philosophical ones. We've substituted material idols made out of stone or wood or whatever, and we've substituted for those material idols mental idols. So we still engage in idolatry, but it's not just that we have some kind of a figure carved out that we can place our God on, but it's an imagery that's stuck in our heads. Or it's a value that we hold that minimizes or restricts or limits or marginalizes the activity of God in our lives. Just a few examples of how we do that today. You know, wh- one of the things that we do, and, and it came out vividly in the, in the, in the video that we showed before the, the message, is that we, we just deify intangible aspects of our lives. The, 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 there's a couple of those. One of the, and, and, 
I'm, I want to speak inside of our context of, of the American culture, because this would be different for different places in the world. But a couple things that really struck me, and, and one of them is, is a little bit related to leisure. You know, we, we, we as, as Americans have, we, we have come to deify leisure. I mean, it's interesting that part of that leisure is when, when, we, when we have free time, we want to have fun. We want to be entertained. Most, most people would tell you that, that if archaeologists were coming to dig up our homes, you know, a thousand years from now, they would think that we all worship televisions because our entire houses are oriented towards being able to see the TV. Are they not? Mine is. I'd even have in the bed pointed at the TV if we had one in our bedroom, but we don't because my wife won't let me, you know. But, you know, but and, and we've come to deify leisure. And, and I tell you what, we're not going to let anything get in the way of leisure. And, you know, it comes up in, in various ways. Like, you know, well, you know, I work Monday through Friday. Saturday is work in the yard day, run the kids all over the place or whatever. So Sunday's our only family day. So we just get to church when we can get to church. You see how it begins to infringe? The other one, that, and, and this is, is so prevailing that, that I just really need to let you unpack it in your own journey. But let me just kind of pull back the covers just a little bit and let you see, you know, what? There is a prevailing value among us here in America that we, we want our lives to be better than our parents' lives, and we want our children's lives to be better than our lives. You know what I'm saying? And we sacrifice everything at that altar. You know, that somehow or another, my children need to have more opportunity than I had, and we range all of our lives to make that happen. It affects our finances. I can't give because I got to save enough for my kids to go to college and then I got to be able to buy this kind of car because that's a better car than my parents used to have and I got to have a bigger house than my parents used to have. I got to have better vacations than they used to have. Then I got to be able to help my kid buy his first house, etc. So I can't do those kinds of stuff. I, I've got to engage in this kind of a career because I got to have enough money and that means I really don't have the serve, time to serve the Lord through the body of Christ. You see how it just keeps running? And I'm not going to pass judgment on anybody. That's their responsibility before God. But man, this is so, it can be so pervasive where we deify this idea of getting ahead and passing on better than what we got that we sacrifice everything else in its wake. And then we hear, we say, and I pass on the father's sins to the third and fourth generation. And we wonder why things, not only in our culture, but in our own families just get worse and worse and worse and worse after generation after generation. It's a humbling thing. I think at this point in time, the, another aspect that's starting to emerge is, is, is the idea of, of, of being physically fit, our appearance, our health. It's, it, it's, it's everywhere. And somehow or another, if you're not into it, you know, you're just, you just not. You know, and it's, it's, we need to be very careful about what we deify. Things that restrict or marginalize God's influence in our lives. I think we also practice idolatry today when we grant authority to other worldviews rather than a biblical worldview. I'm just going to speak out of experience here. I, mean, I will tell you that, that the biggest struggle for me in my journey of figuring out where God was going to fit in my life was through you know, those teen years going into college, and etc. And, and it was just so easy to accept that the, the only way to truly be happy, the only way to truly have any fun, you know, was to, was, to, was to party and to, and to be engaging in sex and all those kinds of things. And I know those are all the typical things that we throw up, but I tell you what, that is a worldview that just, you just go walk on a college campus. You go walk on a Christian college campus, and that worldview is just embraced. 
This is what you have to do. You're young. You sow your oats. This is what it means to have fun, you know? And you, you, you could just take that and you could put it in every age span as we go along. And we grant authority to other views than God's view about what it really means to be successful and happy and whole. And we restrict our understanding of the relevancy or of the presence of God. I mean, it, just a dynamic struggle for us is that, you know, church, I mean, faith works at church. It, it, it works at home to a certain extent. But translating faith to the classroom or to the cubicle or to the streets, you know, God just doesn't work the same way there. And we restrict. So we make a choice about idols and idolatry in our lives. And there's a lot of risk and a lot of reward in the choices that we make. Let me point out the risks first. Let me tell you, idols will always disappoint. If you decide to place your faith in idols, you're going to build your life around idols. They're always going to disappoint. Verse 14 of Jeremiah 10, Everyone is stupid and ignorant. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his carved image. For his cast images are a lie. There is no breath in them. His message is that idols will always disappoint. Let me just hold up a phrase that literally has is, is emerged, I think, in many ways through my generation. And that's the phrase that was coined of hitting rock bottom as you arrive at the top. That's been happening to people. They, they reach the pinnacle of everything that they were striving for, and they get there, and they're absolutely miserable. Because idols always disappoint. Idols will always dominate you as well. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about being in, in bondage, in slavery to those things. Uh, uh, the story that spoke to me when I thought about this idea of, of idols dominating us, controlling us, beating us into submission was a rich young ruler. Here's a guy who, who had a heart to try to follow God. You know, he wanted to make sure that he really had eternal life. And he, and he comes to Jesus and, he, and he's inquiring of what does it take to really walk with God? And Jesus says, you know what, for you, the idol in your life is all the stuff you've got. You've got to go get rid of it so you can put God first and then come follow me. And the idol dominated him and he walked away sad because he knew he was walking away from life. What's the reward? Worshiping God will lead you to delight. I, I, you know, I don't know how to put it into words. You know, it, it's such a nebulous thing, but, but there is just a sense of inner warmness, joy, hope, peace, love. Just, you just know, you know, it, you know, Psalm 37, 4 says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It, it's, it's amazing that when we put God first, we get rid of the idols in our lives, how much delight flows into our lives. I could tell you when I was in high school, the thing that made me matter more to me than, than anything else was accolades. You know, you, you, you wanted to win. I really wanted to win the awards, you know, be the MVP or whatever and that kind of stuff. And, 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 and I got late in high school and God really did begin to shape my heart. And I went off to college and, and, and you know, I, it was one of these things where I said, if I get to school, college, and I don't declare that I'm a Christian right up front, then I'm not going to, I know I'm going to slip. I'm not going to hold myself accountable for my standards. So right away, the very, at the very beginning, the first guys I met in the dorm, first guys I met in the football team, whatever, I, you know, it was clear that I, you know, I, I, I had a faith in Christ and I wasn't going to back off of that. And, and, and th- it wasn't perfect, but things progressed. It was amazing to me, you know, that, that now that I had put God first, some of these things that I had really desired began to happen. You know, by the time I graduated, 
You know, I, I, I had three academic All-American awards tacked up on my wall for playing two sports. I still got some of them because they remind me that I used to be young, but they're not as important to me as, as at one time, you know. And, and, and a couple of other awards, and I had a great GPA and all these other kinds of great things, you know. And, and you know, God just kind of gave them to me. They, it didn't have a sense, but they were st- still a sense of joy. It was a sense of affirmation. You know, when we put God first, he gives us the delight of his heart, delights of our hearts. The last thing I want to tell you, when, and, and the list could just go on and on, but, but when we get this right, when we don't idolize anything, but we worship God alone, God alone is the one who can deliver us. He's the one who can deliver us. You know, Jesus said, if you know the truth, you know, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. You know, and I will tell you that putting God first will deliver you. It'll deliver you from your past. It's called forgiveness. It's called grace. It'll give it, deliver you from your presence because it'll give you the power of God to break habits that are destroying your life today. And it'll deliver you in the future because it'll be your gateway, your ticket to move through death into eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't think the video could have gotten it any better. Everyone worships something. And my challenge to us today is to accept no substitutes. Worship God alone. How do we know what that God looks like? He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And the way to worship God alone is to establish a relationship with Christ based on faith that's active and real and transforming every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year until God takes us home. Accept no substitutes. Worship God as he has revealed himself. Worship God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Once again, Father, we're, we reach this moment of decision in our service. Every time you speak, it creates a crisis of faith. Are we going to believe or are we going to disbelieve? Are we going to obey or are we going to disobey? Are we going to stay the same or are we going to allow you to change us through our faith and by the power of your Spirit? God, you've spoken today. I, I don't believe there's any of us here today who are beyond or above conviction about having things in our lives that limit or marginalize you. God, we thank you for the promise that if we'll let you get it right in our lives, it'll serve as a blessing to a thousand generations. God, we understand the choice is ours. The gift of yours is yours, but the choice is ours. What choice will we make today? We thank you for making the possibility of that choice available through Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We invite our worship team to come and lead us in a closing song. And as we begin to sing, I invite our ushers to come forward and to receive our offering. Let's sing to the Lord this morning. Let's stand.